Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to be here with you tonight after our wonderful celebration of Mahashivaratri to conclude the cycle of uh, Shiva lectures. Of course, we'll have more teachings about this both in the levels and in our curriculum as well as the famous Kashmir Shaivism intro workshop which is coming somewhere later in about two, three months from now. In the satsang, which was like two satsangs ago, I started by sharing with you the profound metaphysical explanations of the first poem that Abhinava Gupta ever wrote, a poem which he himself blesses with an exorcism role, with a role of blessing, he says that just by reading that poem, the grace of Shiva will bless the human being, will alleviate the fear of death and other plagues. And then I spoke to you in the last satsang about Mahashivaratri, how this tradition came to be, and I contemplated that today I will share with you the last poem of Abhinavagupta. All in all, Abhinavagupta probably taught around 40 years of his life. And when he was young, he, when he became a young master, he was having the momentum and the enthusiasm specific to, the, to his young age. And in time, he was a master for a long time, and he practiced and taught. And uh, at some point, he even considered that maybe a hundred people will understand him as a tantric guru, because those things were not being disseminated widely, the tantric teachings. And uh, because of this, he felt the need to touch more people in India, in Kashmir. And that's why in the second part of his life, in the second part of his teaching activity, he focused a lot on aesthetics. He discovered the fact that some refinement, this refinement of aesthetics that you would look at something, a painting, a dance, an acting, any form of art in the end, and you would say, this is not at all kitsch, this is not at all bad taste, this is not at all gross, this is something which is truly beautiful. But why are things truly beautiful? Why do we say that a certain painting is beautiful, even when the paintings can have so many different styles, and then still they share something? This is the mysterious science of aesthetics, and I call it mysterious because Abhinavagupta decided, found out, that the aesthetical sense is just a degraded form of samadhi. It's not a full state of samadhi. 
it's a sort of a second-hand samadhi that the true aesthetics comes from a harmony with the absolute, comes from a harmony with the transcendental consciousness, and that's why some things are qualified as being aesthetical or not. And so he wrote the most famous treatise of aesthetics in the history of India, which is unsurpassed by anything anybody wrote. Around a thousand years ago he wrote that one, and it's still the number one. And then after that, so he touched actors, dancers, painters, sculptures. He touched the whole arts of the Orient, and especially of India, in uh, making them understand where the true beauty resides, what is the true aesthetics. So in this way his spirit became more universal than just teaching yoga and tantra, which again for some people has been enough. Swami Shivananda never wanted to be more than a teacher of yoga. He was happy enough with that. And then in the last stage of his teaching activity, Abhinavagupta focused on philosophy. He realized that for some people, even aesthetics is a very narrow field, and that some people simply need to think philosophically. If that philosophy becomes a practical thing in your life and you fulfill it, you live according to your philosophy or not, that's a different story. Then you have to practice to experience those things. But everybody intellectually can sort of do a, an intellectual harmony, a sort of a spirit of Plato, like in Greek philosophy with the Platonic philosophies, and in this way obtain something which again people consume, can read and consume intellectually. So Abhinavagupta himself in his life evolved, and so did his poems. He wrote approximately 10 or 11 poems, which are preserved. There are rumors of others which have not been preserved or have not been discovered yet. And the last poem, which is written 40 years later compared to the first one, is a sort of his testament it's his spiritual will, it's his legacy, it's like how far did he go, not only with a state of consciousness, but also with explaining these things to the mind. Because what you experience in samadhi cannot be expressed to the mind. The mind can only speak obliquely about the state of samadhi, it can speak in parables, it can speak in hyperboles, it can speak in symbolism, because the mind simply does not have the vocabulary and the capacity to express things which are happening above the mind, in what Sri Aurobindo calls the supramental consciousness. This consciousness is supramental, which means it's simply above the mind. That's what supramental means, supramental. And thus, the mind, as much as it desperately tries, can never express what the spiritual reality is. Poetry, symbolism, and others 
they give us a flavor. So, as Abhinavagupta has spent 40 years talking to his disciples, to the world, and to his own mind about what he was experiencing, like maybe in the morning he was in Samadhi, and in the afternoon he was thinking about how could he describe to the world what he felt in the morning, what he experienced in the morning. In this way, in his last poem, we see the maturity, what resulted from 40 years. In the beginning, those of you who remember the Bhairavastava from three weeks ago, in the Bhairavastava, he is simply in love with God, He says, Oh Lord Bhairava, my heart is singing and dancing, my consciousness is singing and dancing and rejoicing when it sees you and all those things. He is like Bhairava has removed the darkness and now I'm not afraid of death, now I'm not afraid of the demonic actions and all that. He's very young, he's very enthusiastic. It's like I discovered the Bhairavian wonder of this universe. And 40 years later, or 30 years later, there is a timeline which the scholars have decided approximately when each and every one of these poems was written. It's important just for me to show you the Alpha and the Omega, and if you will want to read all the 10 or 11 poems of Abhinavagupta, surely you will find them. There are books which have published them. I myself got them from translations made in the West, not uh, having studied them in the original Kashmiri, since I do not speak that dialect. Or in Sanskrit, poetry in Sanskrit is very difficult. His last poem, unlike the first one, which is called Bhairava Stava, poem, hymn, dedicated to Bhairava, is called Anuttara Ashtika. Anuttara Ashtika, Anuttara is the name which is given to the Supreme Consciousness, to Shiva in the Paramashiva Anuttara form, and Ashtika means eight, something eightfold. So it means eight strophes for the Absolute. He is giving you an eight-strophe poem about the Absolute, how he sees it in his spiritual maturity when he has been for years not only a guru of yoga and tantra but also an esthetician and also a supreme esthetician an ultimate esthetician and also a philosopher and he starts very abruptly by saying here here where he is in that moment the process of evolution is no longer necessary. Therefore, he obviously speaks from the state of consciousness of God. The only one who doesn't need an evolution in this universe is God himself. God himself cannot evolve in something else because God is everything which has been, is, and will ever be. There is no transformation in the divine consciousness, which is perfect already, absolute, and immutable. 
And that's why even the gods, even the great gods evolve. They have a process of evolution adequate to their level of consciousness. But the first verse of his poem is here, the process of evolution is no longer necessary. So he speaks from a point which is stable, absolute, immutable, and that is only the ultimate consciousness. So he says here, where I am now, when writing this poem, when speaking to you, the process of evolution is no longer necessary. Because what can evolve into what? Perfection is already perfection. And then he says, the process of evolution is no longer necessary, neither imaginative contemplation. The imaginative contemplation is the name which is generically given to what Kashmiri Shaivis calls bhavana, that you don't need to imagine God, contemplate with enthusiasm, like having goosebumps, uh, you know, frantic to God. Even that is not necessary anymore because one is already there. There is no need for rising Kundalini. There is no need for Shakti Chalana. There is no need for Bhavana. There is no need for Shaktopaya. These are the names of it in various traditions. There is no need for all those. So he says, neither imaginative contemplation, neither Bhavana, nor skillful talking or debate. Sometimes in India, great gurus manifested their knowledge in this debate, like the Tibetan Buddhists, the art of debate, and so on, expressing consciousness very clearly, very clearly, bringing some things to the level of the mind. If you'll ever study Tibetan Buddhism, you will see, exactly like in uh, even the Hinayana Buddhists, they do the same. They always use standard words. They don't vary the words. The same thing is called with the same words always. It's like they speak the language in dictatorships and communist countries. That means you are not allowed to change a word from a denomination, from a definition, from a title. You always have to call it the same thing. Like I have taken a conscious decision. You don't say, I have taken a decision, because that decision could be instinctual and therefore unconscious. I have taken a conscious decision. I'll just give an example of one term among the thousands which are used in Buddhism, for example. So, skill, but they do that because they want some concepts crystallized in fixed words, always the same words, so there will be no confusion or misunderstanding, no possibility of double entendre or other such things. So, he says, even this skillful talking or debate has no sense in the state of consciousness where he is. Neither meditation or concentration. Meditation and concentration are the backbone of the superior levels in yoga. There is no 
real yoga without concentration or meditation. He says even that you don't need to do because you are already there. You are already in the absolute. Not even the effort of prayer. At least the last thing left is do some bhakti. Love Shiva. He says, of course, there can be love in you, but even prayer is not going to change anything from that state of consciousness. This state of consciousness, he talks here about the ultimate samadhi, the samadhi with eyes open, the perfect identification with God. Even that, you don't need to pray when you are at that level, because you are that. And then he basically realizes that he speaks about a paradox, and he says, tell me, what is the supreme reality, the absolute? Like, I'm talking about it and I'm telling you, prayer, meditation, concentration, debate, bhavana, nothing is necessary. Everything is perfect there already. Even the process of evolution, which is the backbone of the universe, everything and everybody in this universe evolves, transforms, but not this, not the top of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is always one and is always the top of the pyramid. And then he realized, you know, he asks, therefore, I'm talking about something which doesn't make much sense to your intellect. He says, tell me, what is the supreme reality? The absolute. Because that's exactly the question. People can never answer this question with their mind. And you'll see his answer. His answer apparently makes no sense. It's a parable. It's a paradox. So he says, tell me, what is the supreme reality, the absolute? That's what everybody wants to find out. But the only way to find out is to experience it. If you don't taste it, if you don't feel it, you can talk about it until you turn blue. It will not still be known to you. So he says, what is the supreme reality, the absolute? And then he answers like the Jewish prophets. Listen. When they spoke to the nation, they say, listen, O Israel, the Lord thy God is speaking. No, he says something similar. He says, listen. Like, I'm going to tell you. Of course he is not, because the words cannot express. He is going to use a syntagm. He is going to use a parable. He says, listen, do not give up anything and do not take anything. This is the supreme detachment. This is the detachment from Sahasrara. If you are it, if you are one of the absolute, you don't need to give up anything because everything is perfect the way it is and you don't need to take anything because you are not lacking anything. It's like there is nothing to do. Stop fretting. People always want to give up something or to take something. Take a tapas, 
give up smoking, God knows what is there in their lives. He says, do not give up anything and do not take anything. Be as you are, rejoicing happily of everything. Be as you are. What if you are a murderer or a pedophile? Then you are not in that consciousness. When you are in that consciousness, you are not a murderer, you are not a pedophile, you are exactly in the center of the universal consciousness. That's why you don't need to leave anything, you don't need to take anything. So he says, be as you are, because ultimately you are Shiva, you are the supreme consciousness. You don't need to leave everything, you don't need to take everything, be as you are, and there comes a fundamental turn of phrase where he says, rejoicing happily of everything. This rejoicing happily of everything is nothing but the factor which Hinduism in general has called Ananda, Sat Chit Ananda, pure existence, pure consciousness, this is like be as you are, but rejoicing happily. Without Ananda, which is the name given to the Shakti aspect, your state of consciousness is not complete. It is not full. It is only a partial realization of the truth. And that's why he gives it as a measure. He says, be as you are, rejoicing happily of everything. When you are in that state indeed, and you are as you are, you are somehow rejoicing happily of everything. There is a spontaneous bliss. There is a spontaneous ecstasy. Like everything is as it should be. And therefore, as the God consciousness, you can only rejoice happily. People would say, even if there comes a tsunami and kills a million people, even if there is a war and I don't know what country and people die, yes. God rejoices happily in everything, of everything. That's incomprehensible to the human mind. Completely incomprehensible. When people project their feelings, they think that God should reflect human feelings. That's so very untrue. That's the way of never understanding God. All the silly jokes which are made about God doing this, God saying that, somebody meeting with God, and, and everybody assumes that God shares their limitations, their emotions, their feelings. That's completely not the case. The divine consciousness is incomprehensible from the standpoint of the limited ego of people. And we move to the second of his eight strophes. From the standpoint of the absolute reality, now he wants to explain. From the standpoint of this absolute reality, don't be as you are. Don't take anything, don't give up anything, rejoice happily in everything, of everything. 
from the standpoint of this absolute reality, imprisonment in samsara does not even exist. That he means for thousands of years, Buddhists and Hindus have told you that you are a prisoner in samsara. But he says from the standpoint of God, there has never been any prison because everything is God from Alpha to Omega. So how can there be any imprisonment where everything is the divine consciousness? There is, as he says, just the delusion of it. And this delusion has been used constructively by the great sages of this planet who have said, since you have the feeling that you are limited and imprisoned, it means you didn't find your freedom. You didn't find the supreme. And therefore fight as to liberate yourself. But that liberation does not exist. But where you sit, you can't see it that way. And therefore thinking that you are a prisoner and you need to break the chains is useful because it makes you struggle for an awakening. And that's useful, although it's completely untrue. But as a method, it actually serves a purpose. So he says, from the standpoint of the absolute reality, if you ask God, imprisonment in samsara does not even exist. There's a story in India where the disciple comes to the Guru and says, Guruji, I want to liberate myself. And the Guru, who is a bit of a Zen type, a bit sarcastic, cutting through like this, he looks at him, almost laugh, mocking him, and he says, who the heck is keeping you prisoner? You know? It's like the disciple feels, I'm prisoner. And that's the feeling which yoga exploits in a very constructive way. Not in a miserable way, in a very constructive way. No? The first PhD ever written on yoga in the 1930s is called Yoga-Immortality and Freedom. Like this is what yoga is. It's about immortality, reach eternal life, don't die, be forever, and freedom. Those are the biggest two words. No? And then Abhinava Gupta comes and says, who the heck, the nobody is a prisoner anyway. Why look for freedom? You look for freedom because you don't have this consciousness, and therefore it seems that you are trapped somewhere, somehow. Then, how can there possibly occur the idea of any chaining for the living? Like, why the living beings have the feeling that they are chained? Remember, Buddha says it clearly. You are a prisoner in samsara. This is a prison planet. Until you reach nirvana, you will be a prisoner being obliged to reincarnate thousands of times, sometimes in very bad situations, and you will be ignorant and suffer and run in a circle like a hamster in a cage because you haven't reached the freedom. And Apinavagupta comes and says, well, 
it is an illusion anyway. How can then, if, if there is no imprisonment, how can occur the idea of any chaining for the living? But the feeling is there. And that's why the yogis have said, if the feeling is there, let's give to people something for this feeling. A treatment for this feeling. And then, yoga is immortality and freedom. Because this feeling is there. Not from the standpoint of Shiva. Not from the standpoint of Abhinava Gupta. But they know how it feels to be in your shoes because they have been there when they were young. And they know that the normal person is hypnotized in feeling like, I don't know, but I feel I'm a prisoner of something. And Buddha is right. If you die in that frustration, you will stay in the astral world 300, 400 years in the same frustration, and then you will come back to the earth in the same state of frustration, and you will continue and continue until you become like Abhinava Gupta. So, it is there, and it isn't there. From the standpoint of the super-enlightened Abhinava Gupta, it's not there. He tells you what is at the end of the rainbow. When you will cross the rainbow bridge, that's what it is. There is not only that there is no fear, but there is not even liberation. If the free soul has never been chained, the free soul has never been chained. You cannot chain Atman. Because Atman is Brahman. Atman is Shiva. Chaitanya Atma, says Shiva Sutra. Atman is Chaitanya, is the universal consciousness. And therefore, if the free soul has never been chained, but try to think how much misery is in people's daily life. How far people are from this. Although it's their essence. It's right under their nose. And yet an effort has to be made. If the free soul has never been chained, straining to liberate it is useless. But that's a very dangerous statement. Because everybody will say, okay, no more yoga for me. But that's not true. There is no more yoga for Abhinava Gupta. There is no more yoga for Shiva, except for teaching it, except for passing it on. They don't have the need for it, because the state of consciousness makes it evident, obvious. Straining to liberate it is useless. He declares all the Indian philosophy and Buddhism and so on useless, which it isn't. But it is from where he writes these verses. It's like, stop fretting. Shiva is everything. Shiva is everywhere. Yeah, but then why? Because you are in a role, like somebody has made you a Pierrot or something in a theater, and you play a stupid role. And if you identify with a role, you suffer for the role. And if you identify with Shiva then there is only a dance. All these is or are 
only the delusion of the imaginary shadow of a demon. Like when they do shadow shows and they show you a demon on the wall. But the demon doesn't exist. It's just a shadow. It's just a shadow theater. This, all this is like the delusion of the imaginary shadow of a demon. The rope taken for a snake. This is the preferred metaphor of Shankaracharya three centuries before Abhinavagupta. That Shankaracharya, to demonstrate how Maya works, he says you see a piece of rope and you think it's a snake. And your adrenaline is going through the roof. And then you realize it was only a rope. That's exactly how Maya is, that you think the rope is a snake. And that's exactly how enlightenment is, that you realize it was just a piece of rope, always. And there is no need to be moved by it. So the snake, the rope taken for a snake, is a favorite metaphor in Indian philosophy that some people take this world to really be serious, to be important, to be meaningful. Oh, there is a snake. There isn't. It's just a rope. Chill out. There is nothing. Nothing makes any difference for the divine consciousness. Only relatively for you. Buddha saw dead people, sick people, old people, and he panicked. He got afraid. And then he needed to run in the forest to do something. Because he was unhappy, scared, agonizing. Then you need to do something. But otherwise, when you are like Abhinavagupta in the Shiva consciousness, he says all these are only like the delusion of the imaginary shadow of a demon in a puppet theater, in a shadow, like this Chinese shadow theater. The rope taken for a snake, which produces a baseless fear. That fear has no foundation. It's a fear which only the mind creates and says, that could be a snake. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. One of your neighbors talks badly to you, then you say, "Ah, he could be disrespecting me. And we could go on like this forever. No, they could, uh, I don't know, do something in Ukraine, which is bad for Russia. Everybody takes themselves so damn seriously. Like, their country matters. Yeah, the Zionists decided that nobody should fuck with the Jews again. Never again. Who cares in the Shiva consciousness about this? Who cares about the wars in Rwanda or in Ukraine or about... It's the rope taken for a snake which produces a baseless fear. From that standpoint, there is nothing to be afraid of. Because Shiva, God, is everything and everywhere. And then he repeats it like a refrain. He will not repeat it all the time, only in the first three strophes, less and less. But he repeats what he said already. He said, do not give, like remember, do not give up anything and do not take anything. You can't gain anything. You can't lose anything. In the supreme nature, 
everything is perfect as it is. You just have a delusion because you saw a rope and you think it's a snake. And you think I'm running away to gain some safety. Do not give up anything and do not take anything. Established well in your own self. Now he puts it in a different way. He said, be as you are. Be as you are. He now puts it by saying, established well in your own self. Who am I? Established well in your own self. As you are. Enjoy. This is supreme wisdom. Ramakrishna was as he was. Shivananda was as he was. Sri Aurobindo was as he was. Teresa of Avila, just to take a female name, or Laleshwari, they were as they were. One of them was going around naked, the other one was not showing even except her hands and face, being a Christian nun. So different. Be as you are. As you are, enjoy. He doesn't forget to say enjoy. Because when you reach the divine consciousness, there must be a certain secret enjoyment. Because there is ananda. The first manifestations of samadhi are states of ecstasy, beatitude and bliss. Ramakrishna did not try to stop being an Aquarius. Shivananda did not try to stop being a Virgo. I don't know which saint from England or Germany didn't try to stop having blue eyes. Be as you are. Established well in your own self as you are. Some people are sanguine. They say ten things, they remember only one tomorrow. Some people are melancholic. They remember everything, just like elephants do. Some people are choleric. They are very motivated and driven. Some people are very phlegmatic and they take it easy, easy. Sabai, sabai, as they say it around here. You know, like what he is saying, as you are, you don't need to be sanguine. You don't need to be choleric. You don't need to have blue eyes. You don't need to be thin or thick. You don't need to be an earth sign or an air sign. You can be Shiva as you are. Find it as you are. You will be peculiar. Ma Ananda Mai, although she was a Taurus, she was feeling like moving. She was getting bored. And she had three ashrams in India. One in Haridwar, one in Bengal, one God knows where. And she was spending four months in this one, four months in this one, four months in this one. And somebody asked her, Mother, why do you spend all this effort that every four months you have to get into cars and trains and so on and travel 800 kilometers or 1,000 kilometers, go to some place, there you have to dust the place, 
clean. It takes you a week until you settle down. Why don't you just stay, for God's sake, in one place and people will come and visit you in that place? The answer of Mahananda Mai was wonderful. She spoke to God, not to the guy who asked her. And he said, God, you know me that you made me a restless little girl. What can I do? She simply said, I have fire up my ass. I am restless. Every four months I have the psychological need to go some other place because I'm getting bored of the old place. I can't change that. She didn't try to change that. Be as you are. Enjoy. Very important. Very important. Then he starts attacking the very spiritual methodology. Strophe number three. How could one distinguish in the Supreme between worshipper, worshipped, and worship itself? You sit in front of Shiva and you worship him. You are Shiva. Shiva is Shiva. And if you give to Shiva a flower, that flower is Shiva also. If you say a mantra, that mantra is Shiva also. So he says in a monistic world, how can one distinguish? That's his philosophy in the end of his life. It doesn't mean that his disciples shouldn't practice. But it means like he has reached to a complete peace from the standpoint. If you can keep this state of consciousness, then the peace is there. And he says, how could one distinguish in the Supreme between worshipper, worshipped, and worship itself? Like the mantras, the prostrations, the ritual, the whatever. Pouring ghee on the Shivalinga and all that. How could there be any discourse there? That you are saying, oh Shiva, may you bless me and may you... Like what discourse is that? Who is talking to who? The Logos is Shiva himself. And it's like, how can there be any discourse in the world in which Shiva is on both sides of the aisle. For whom would there be any progress? Like, who makes progress? Because your Atman is Brahman. So it's perfect. So what progress? I did 10 minutes of Shirshasana and I made progress. Not from the standpoint of Atman. People say, yeah, but I feel my capacity to sublime the low energy is much better. Yeah, sure. There are many benefits to Shirshasana. But Shirshasana does not make benefit your Shiva consciousness. Because nothing can make that one benefit. Because that one has nothing to benefit from. So he says, for whom would there be any progress like you say, I made great progress. You read Milarepa, you read big Tibetan lamas who did huge tapas, and they say, after three years, I got confidence in my practice. And Abhinavagupta says, really? Who made any progress? Where? How? It's an illusion. It's a very welcome illusion. And it's an illusion which relieves you of your tension. But it's just an illusion in the end. For whom would there be any progress? How would this occur? Like, how would the progress be seen? Is your Atman becoming more shining? Is your Atman becoming bigger, smarter? 
there is no change at the level of Atman. And thus, he questions the very fundamentals of the tradition of the whole spirituality of India and of the world. And, last here, who would enter gradually in the self? Like, I am uh, uniting with myself, with my Atman. Like, wake up. You are your Atman already. You just didn't consider it that way. Remember, for some people, such a poem misinterpreted is a license to stop your practice. But you can stop your practice only when you are in this state of consciousness. Because then the practice will make no difference whatsoever. As long as you can't see things this way, then the practice is very welcome. But it takes you to a state where your own tapasya burns itself out. Like, I'm happy I did it because now I'm here. Now I need it? No. Maybe just to do it for other people, to relieve them of their burden, to give them an example, to support them. But there is no... Milarepa cannot get more enlightened by doing another 10 hours of practice. There is nowhere to go. He is there already. So who would gradually enter into the self? No, you are already full on into the self. Oh, wonder, he exclaims, even if this illusion appears as differentiated. You are you and I am I. You are not the yoga hall. You are not the light. You are not the air in the room. You are not the jungle. You are not this. The illusion appears always as being differentiated. Everything is different from everything. Even if this illusion appears as differentiated, yet it, the illusion, the reality, it is nothing else than the Supreme Consciousness. Like you are looking at the Supreme Consciousness right now and still you insist on seeing it as an illusory world characterized by space, time, and the other limitations, the other kanchukas of this world. So he says, oh wonder. Well, for him it's a wonder because he can see the other side. For the rest of the people, they are condemned only to see the illusion. He says, even if this illusion appears as differentiated, like there are a million things here around, yet it is nothing else than one thing. The whole thing is one thing. Exactly as you would have wrinkles on the water, and you would say, look, it looks like a horse. It's not a horse. It's just the lake. It's just the surface of the water. Everything is just the surface of the water. But it can look like a horse. And then you get distracted by the horse image, which comes and goes. No? And you cannot see the water, the ocean, the oneness, that everything is one. So he says, yet it is nothing else than the Supreme Consciousness. You are looking at Shiva right now, but it's exactly like those 3D images. You look at them and you don't manage to see Shiva in it because you don't know how to look. 
in the moment when you look the right way, it's right there. It's always been there. Nothing has changed. So yet, this illusion is nothing else than the Supreme Consciousness. And then he continues, he is in exclamatory mode. He says, ah, everything is only pure essence experienced by the self. And he reminds you of what he says in the end of strophes 1 and 2. He just doesn't say, don't give up anything and don't take anything. He just goes short and he says, don't worry uselessly. You worry uselessly. Everything is God. Even when people arrest people and torture them and take them, yes, it's still just God. I cannot accept that. You cannot accept because you cannot accept. You've just said it. You have a limitation which makes you incapable to accept. Because for you, the appearances are more precious than the reality. The reality is something else. And the reality is that everything is the pure consciousness. Everything is the pure essence, Atman, Brahman, experienced by the self, by Shiva. And therefore, he concludes by saying, don't worry uselessly. He says, I, Abhinava Gupta, I don't worry about a thing anymore. Because I have reached to the place of that. Number four. This bliss, so it's about a bliss. He speaks about a state of consciousness in which he enjoys it's a happy state of consciousness. This bliss is not comparable with the joy brought by richness. Some people who are rich are joyful because they are rich. And he knows, Abhinavagupta knows this. And he says, we are not talking about just a joy caused by a material cause. Or with drunkenness, is not comparable with drunkenness from wine or from sexual union with the beloved. Even wine, taken in reasonable amounts and with an aesthetical sense, like by when you are Omar Khayyam, or something like this, even wine can produce a certain uh, pleasure, satisfaction, joy. Of course, if you slosh yourself like a pig, and then you crawl through the mud and in your drunkenness you vomit on yourself and then you kill somebody, that's not a joy. But again, in aesthetical, if you drink like an artist, just to get slightly fuzzy, he says this bliss is not comparable with the drunkenness from wine. Abhinavagupta knows about that, but he says it's not comparable. Or from the sexual union with the beloved. Sure, you have sex, your brain is aflush with serotonin and dopamine and endorphins from your orgasms, from your extended orgasm, and you feel great. But he says, if you think that that's what the Shiva consciousness is, you are kidding yourself. You don't know that we are talking about something radically different. The tantric tradition of India says the joy of sex is neighboring with it. And by transfiguration, you could realize that sex is just like a drop 
from the ocean of Ananda, of Shiva and Shakti. And therefore, you could transcend, use the little pleasure that you feel in sex to go into the oceanic pleasure, cosmic pleasure that you feel in the Shiva consciousness. So he says, this bliss is not like people think, I have reached bliss. No, I have known people who thought that they had some joyful state and that they had reached some state of enlightenment or with the drunkenness from wine or from the sexual union with the beloved. The appearance of this conscious light, some people see the consciousness of Shiva as light, prakasha. This is a metaphor which is used specially by people that are visual. So they call it the primary light the clear light, the primary clear light, whatever, in Tibetan Buddhism, for example. So the appearance of this conscious light is nowhere comparable with the rays of a lamp or of the sun and the moon. This is the horrendous confusion made by people who are manipuristic and sometimes they have phenomena of clairvoyance And then they close their eyes and they see light and sparks and they go in the astral world like Superman and they see colors and they say, I'm enlightened, I have seen the light. You have seen astral light. Astral light is many, many levels, many, many floors lower than Prakasha, the true light, the uncreated light the light of the light, the light behind the light. In that light you see, Ramakrishna said, I can see God as clearly as I can see you, more clearly than I can see you with my physical eyes, because he could see this light. Then God is obvious. But again, Abhinava Gupta warns you, he say, don't think that this is comparable with the rays of a lamp or with the rays of the sun and of the moon. Remember, the sun and the moon are used symbolically. The sun as golden and a warm light, which corresponds to Pingalanadi, and the moon like silver, white, a cold light, which corresponds to Ida, Nadi. He refers to the astral lights as well. Many, many people got cheated, by the fact that they had some experience of light and they thought that they saw God and that they are enlightened. It's not as simple as that because it has to come, he describes the context, the state of consciousness, which is it. So he says this bliss is not like uh, richness or sex. This light, this conscious light, is not like the rays of a lamp or when one becomes liberated from accumulated differentiation, like we have accumulated differentiation, we live a lifetime and our mind has drawers, which says this is this, this is that. It's not true. They are both of them Shiva. They are both of them God. As different as they sound, it's just one reality. So he says, when one becomes liberated from the accumulated differentiation that we have accumulated so much samskaras, so much vasanas, so much vrittis, so much eventually garbage in our mind, 
The state of happiness, when one becomes liberated, the state of happiness is an excitation comparable to dropping a heavy burden on the ground. So he gives a kinesthetic simile. He says it's like all your life you've carried a heavy backpack and you didn't know. And one day you find the Shiva consciousness. And then it's like that backpack has fallen off and you go like... And you feel so light and you feel so great. It says when one becomes liberated from this garbage, the state of happiness is an excitation. It's like, yay, yuppie, eureka. You know, it's like I found that it's like an excitation comparable to dropping a heavy burden to the ground. Like you've dropped the burden of 10,000 lifetimes. You've dropped the burden of millions of years of ignorance and separation. And like there you are, free indeed, conscious indeed. The dawn of this light is the recovering of a lost treasure. Again, he uses a visual simile. He says the dawn of this light, it's not really a light. But there is no other metaphor than to compare it with the dawn of a light. But this light is not like the astral light or like the physical light or even like the causal light. It's something else. It's the light of the spirit, the light of the light. The dawn of this light is the recovering of a lost treasure. It's something which you had originally and you lost it. And when the light is coming... It's like you are back. You are back home. It's the recovering of a lost treasure. Colon. The field of universal non-duality. This is the lost treasure. The field of universal non-duality. Everything is a universal field, a cosmic consciousness in which there is just non-duality and that is lost it's still there never goes away but it is subjectively lost until you find it again and then it's like you dropped a heavy burden then you are light and free like in Bhairavastava in strophe number 5 he mentions the fact that the mind is the one causing the trouble. And while the consciousness is one, the mind is generating the universe. The mind is generating the yin and the yang of the universe and it's producing vrittis, opposite emotions, samskaras, vasanas, that the human beings get lost in maya, which is characterized by plus and minus, ping-pong between two extremes while the truth is in the middle. He says attraction and repulsion, pleasure and pain, dusk and dawn. He even takes phenomena of nature. Hey, it's dusk, it's dawn. Confidence and despair. How many people in spirituality, they didn't feel one day confidence and the next day despair. 
All these states, which he as a human being knows them as well as you do. He has a brain as you do. He has an astral body and a mental body as you do. And he knows that as long as you get impurities there, those subtle bodies, the mind in general, starts talking nonsense. The mind starts tormenting you. So he says, attraction and repulsion, pleasure and pain, dusk and dawn, confidence and despair, all these states that appear in the world as separate, they are the opposites. Of course they are separate. You cannot say that at the same time you feel attraction and repulsion. Or you can say, I feel attraction from this standpoint, and I feel repulsion from that standpoint. But they don't mingle. They appear as very different things. All these states that appear in the world as separate, in reality, are not differentiated. The mind cannot understand how is despair and confidence one and the same. Because it's the same wave, and it's the same sinus wave, and one of them is the top wave, and the other one is the bottom wave. No, And you see them as opposites, but it's the same wave. He sees the wave, not the polarity of it. So he says, in reality, they are not differentiated. Whenever you seize the individual form of such a state, like suddenly you are depressed, Suddenly you are confident. Suddenly you are attracted. Suddenly you are repelled. But you didn't see both of them. You are just focusing only on one of them. So he says whenever you see the individual form, the individual form, not the global form, of such a state, pay attention to the identity between your thought, that thought, and the nature of consciousness. Because where does the thought come from? In Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, one shloka says, where could your mind go during the meditation, when you do yoga, where could your mind go so that you experience a state of consciousness or you think about something which is not Shiva? So basically it says, even when you are not focused and it feels like you are distracted, you jump from Shiva to Shiva. It's still Shiva. And if your consciousness tells you, no problemo, Shiva to Shiva, we stay in Shiva, then you don't experience this duality. You experience it as oneness. You have unified it. So Gupta says, if you experience still polar states of consciousness, which everybody does, when you are not like Gupta, then he says, Pay attention to the identity between your thought, your mind, and the nature of consciousness, your spirit, between the sixth plane of your being and the seventh plane of your being. Because the mind is just reflecting the consciousness. The mind does not have a separate existence. The mind is a mirror, is a copycat of the consciousness. And you see something, but look carefully. You are seeing the mirror. You are seeing the ocean. You are seeing the whole thing. And thus, he gives a yoga technique. He says, pay attention to the identity 
between your thought and the nature of consciousness. And then he almost is humoristic because he told you rejoice, be yourself. He says fulfilled by this contemplation. Don't you rejoice? But the normal person says fuck, I don't get it. That's true. Abhinavagupta gets it very beautifully and he sees it in a jiffy. And he is asking you, focus, focus better. Focus better because your mind is nothing but a reflection of the consciousness. And therefore, all the opposites, they are not opposite, really. They are just reflecting spanda. There is a vibration of consciousness which creates pluses and minuses, yin and yang, confidence and despair, or whatever he called them. Then, number six, in the number six, he basically goes with the philosophy further. He says, basically, this is how the whole world has appeared, from the game of yin and yang, because the mind produces opposites, and these opposites generate an endless dialectics, In modern philosophy from Hegel and on, it's called the dialectics. Even Karl Marx used it in a very materialistic meaning. Dialectics being two things which are opposite and which seem to fight with each other to find a resolution, to find a solution. He says, therefore, if now he explained about the opposites, that you can curb the opposites with your sahasrara, then he goes and says... What did not exist before suddenly becomes effective. Like before there was Shiva, Shiva Shakti, the ocean of consciousness. And then suddenly you have mountains and trees and houses and people and opposite states of mind. So he says what did not exist before suddenly becomes effective. Because these dualities, they are effective in the world. We suffer because of them. So are also all the things in the world. They did not exist before and then reflected by Shakti in the manifestation. Suddenly they become Maya. Suddenly they become effective. They happen. If you knock your foot on a boulder, you bleed and you suffer. And as much as you say it's maya, it's just maya, you still bleed and you suffer. (coughs) So he's not underestimating the universe. He says they were not there before in the original consciousness and then they become effective. So are also all the things in this world. How can they claim reality? As long as there is a confusing distortion of the middle state. You go to attraction or repulsion. You go to confidence or despair. But what's the middle state? The middle state is aham. I am. Atman. I am Shiva. That's the middle state. It's neither attraction nor repulsion. Because Shiva has created both extremes. It's part of the creation of this universe that we have those extremes. So he says, think, how can these things which are pinging and ponging, how can they claim reality 
as long as there is a confusing distortion of the middle state. The middle state in which you are supposed to stay is distorted. You are already tricked. You are tripping. Your mind has play, is playing fetch with you. And your mind is giving you an attraction. And you go. You go for the attraction. But you are not in the middle state anymore. You are not in the state of peace and detachment. What reality, he continues, what reality exists in the unreal, the unstable, the artificial, in the multitude of appearances, in the error of a dream? He uses many metaphors from like the error of a dream. The whole universe is a dream. Maya is compared to a dream. How can there exist reality in the unreal? Maya is unreal, unstable. Like the Greek philosopher said, pantarei, everything flows. But if everything flows, we are not seeing the absolute. That's just prakriti. But where is purusha? Where is the stability? We, we lack the fulcrum. Many Greek philosophers who dealt with matter, like Archimedes and others, they said, give me a fulcrum and I can move the universe. But the problem is, where is the fulcrum? Because there is only one fulcrum, something which is not dependent on space, time or anything, and which is absolute and immutable. And Abhinavagupta decries the fact that we steer away exactly from this fulcrum, from this stable thing. He says, what reality exists in the unreal, the unstable, the artificial? He calls it artificial because from the standpoint of Shiva and Shakti, the universe is artificial. It's just a creation. But you could create it, you could take it back and create it in a different way. And then it would be another reality, still artificial. And in this way, artificially, you can create a myriad of realities and none of them makes full sense without the center, without the consciousness. What reality exists in the unreal, the unstable, the artificial, in the multitude of appearances, in the error of a dream? He is telling you, when you have all this attraction and repulsion and whatever did not exist before suddenly becomes active and you say, oh, what a reality, you should keep your cool. You should stay right in the middle. Don't get enthusiastic. Don't get sad. A Greek philosopher, echoing this at a lower level, he said it very beautifully. I forgot if it was Socrates or Plato or whoever it was, Aristoteles, one of the big ones. He said, don't cry, don't laugh, but understand. No? The problem is that exactly like when they play a penalty in football and the one who executes the penalty is going to shoot to the left or to the right. And the question is if the goalkeeper can know to go to the left or to the right. And the good penalty executors, the ones who shoot, they make in such a way that the goalkeeper goes in the opposite direction. Exactly in the same way, Mother Nature 
is hypnotizing us, is tricking us, and we go for the wrong thing. This is Maya. This is the incredible power of Maya. So he says, how can there exist? Why do you go for the dream, for the appearances? And echoing again that what is the supreme reality? Be as you are. What he said in the beginning, he comes again, but not with the same words, with parallel words. He said, surpass your lack of perfection. Because it's just the lack of perfection. It's because you don't have the Shiva consciousness. And that's why you fall for it every time. Surpass your lack of perfection, characteristic to fear and doubt. That's what characterizes most people's existence. Fear, doubt. Even Vivekananda, when he had not been in Samadhi, he was asking Ramakrishna, where is this God? Can you see it? And eventually he told to Ramakrishna, I think that you are Gaga. I think that you think that you see God, but there is no God. And then Ramakrishna, exasperated like this guy is too much, touched him with his foot like this, just stretched his foot and put him in Samadhi. You know, it's like enough with this bullshit, you know, that you live in fear and doubt. Now you have the doubt that I, your guru, I lost it. I'm crazy. You know, it's like, I'm not crazy at all. I can see perfectly well the reality. No? So he says, surpass your lack of perfection, characteristic to fear and doubt, and wake up. He here uses the Buddhist terminology, the Zen terminology, that the spiritualization is like you wake up. It's always been there, but you just need to wake up. Wake up. Two more strophes in which he is singing praise to this Anuttara. How should we connect with this Anuttara, the unsurpassed, the ultimate? The unborn, the unborn, who is unborn? Shiva is unborn. God is unborn. Nobody gave birth to God. The unborn cannot be subjected to the flow of of objective existence. Like you say, God is incarnated in thousands and thousands of bodies, in thousands and thousands of lifetimes. That's your illusion. The illusion of differentiation. But the unborn cannot be subjected to this. They manifest only experienced by you. A limited consciousness of the ego says, I was born, I died, I was born again, I died. Shiva doesn't see it like that. Shiva sees it as just the same sinus wave in which now you are here, now you are here, now you are here, now you are here, but the sinus wave is one. The spanda is one. The energy of Shiva is one. They manifest only experienced by you. Although deprived of reality by nature, In an instant, by an error of perception, they seem to participate to the real. For the people who discovered their multiple lifetimes and so on, it's so real. Even Buddha, he said, before I reached enlightenment, I saw my 10,000 lifetimes. Like, hey, they seem so real. Like, I have a personal history here in this universe. It's not your history. It's the dance of Shiva. Shiva is all the actors. I, 
you, he, she. Shiva is all the persons. First person in grammar, second person in grammar, third person in grammar, masculine and feminine, and the plural as well. Nataraja, the king of the actors. Shiva is all the actors. So it's all the existence of Shiva. So he says, although deprived of reality by nature, because it's Shiva, in an instant by an error of perception, because we get tricked and we go in a trip and we forget the middle state, by an error of perception, they seem to participate to the real. The greatness of this universe emerges from your imagination because you think about things. There is a greatness in this universe. Wow, there are big things and there is liberation and thousands of lifetimes and a lot of things. But it's your mind. The mind creates these ups and downs, big things and small things, important things and unimportant things. In the supreme reality, everything is just Shiva. So he says, the greatness of this universe, they say, oh, the universe is great. It emerges only from your imagination because there is no other cause for its appearance. It's the mind, not the spirit. It's the level six, not the level seven. The level seven simplifies everything to the essence. You return back to the simplicity of the essence. But the mind, oh my God, the mind can build galaxies and meta-galaxies and clusters of neutronic stars and anything you can imagine. Now I'm just raving in astronomy. But think about metaphysical things, heavens and hells and everything. They exist in the realm of the mind and in the realm of Prakriti. But he says the greatness of this universe emerges from your imagination. He calls it imagination. Like uh, you think it and you think with faith. You think with a lot of conviction. Like you believe in what you think. Because there is no other cause for its appearance. That is why beautiful conclusion here you shine in all the worlds in all the worlds physical etheric 229 bhuvanas whatever you want to define as multiple worlds of the he says that is why you shine in all the worlds through your own splendor and although you are the one you are shiva you are bhairava Although you are the one, yet you are the essence of multiplicity. There is a part of you which stays one, and there is a part of you which we define as the mind, which keeps creating samsara, and in that samsara, everything is amazing. It's fun. If you can look at it like Abhinava Gupta, it's fun, because it's the cinema of God. It's non-stop cinema. The whole universe is just a movie played on by Shiva on the mirror of Shakti. And you look at it and only that Shiva and Shakti don't believe in it. 
they are detached from it. They can look at it and say it is and it isn't. But the differentiated reality, the people, Nara, Shiva, Shakti and Nara, Nara, the individual soul, still has access back to Shiva and Shakti. So he tells you, you are the creator of the universes. You are the creator of reality. Many people say, come on, this is so big, so vast. That's the reality. We see it in small things. When you study psychology, when you study hypnotherapy, when you study the power of the mind, you discover that people create a lot of things with the mind. Like in crime investigation, they know that people seem to remember things and 90% of the people remember something completely different, honestly, remember something completely different as to what really has happened. Our memory is a nightmare because we don't remember really the events as they happen. There are multiple psychological experiments which show that we make up as we go, we reinvent the past. Things which we like, we say we didn't like. Things which we didn't like, we say we didn't do it and they never happen. And stuff like that. Because it's all the game of illusion. And in this game of illusion, he wants you to connect with the middle state. With He says, you are the one, but yet you are also the essence of multiplicity. You, with your mind and with the cosmic mind, you generate the maya and the diversity. And he concludes in the eighth strophe. As you can see, he decided in this poem to describe the absolute and to make a philosophy of existence. That's why I said in the end of his life, he is less of an enthusiastic student of yoga. He is more like a philosopher, like I have seen it all and I can tell you about it. Last strophe, the real and the unreal, which is what? There is no real and unreal because there is only one Shiva. The real and the unreal, the few and the many, but there is one or there are many. Both are true. Shiva divides himself into multiplicity, and you are Shiva, I am Shiva, he is Shiva, she is Shiva, and at the same time there is just the one. So the one and the multiplicity. The eternal and the transient. Oh, this is eternal, this is not. There's no difference. What is tainted by illusion and what is the purity of the self. Oh, but this is illusion. Remember, there is no place where there is no Shiva. All these, all these dualities, they shine in the mirror of consciousness. Literally speaking, Shakti is that mirror, but Shiva is generating that paradigm. So it's a collaboration of Shiva and Shakti who together, exactly like you need a male and a female to produce a baby. You need both genders. So Shiva and Shakti, they collaborate. All these shine in the mirror of consciousness when consciousness emerges as immediate contact with the self. That means when Shakti is like a mirror 
when Shakti is Uma, Parvati, Adi Shakti, when Shakti is the perfectly undifferentiated form, the supreme form of Shakti. So when the consciousness emerges as immediate contact with the self, if you recognize all these things as the essential light, if you look at it there, you can see that it's a reflection of what Shiva does. And therefore you can recognize, I see the universe, but the whole universe is a reflection of the essential light, Prakasha, the light of Shiva. Then if you recognize all these things, as the, like you look at everything and you say, this is Shiva, this is Shiva, this is Shiva, this is Shiva, this is Shiva Shakti, this is the essential consciousness, this is the primordial light. You, whose greatness is based on your own inner experience, because this is a state of consciousness, then you, if you can manage to see everything like in Bhava Samadhi, then you, whose greatness is based on your own inner experience, enjoy your universal power. That simply means you are God. Then everything listens to you. If you say, this is Shiva, I am Shiva, this is me, then this listens to you. It is you. It's part of you. Then you are omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. You have all the divine attributes because you can identify the non-manifestation with the manifestation. You can see outside that it's all Shiva. All those dual state of consciousness, all the things which suddenly emerge, like be cool, wake up, be as you are, there is no need to worry. No. Then you enjoy your universal power. This is the testament of Abhinavagupta, his last poem production, in which basically, in the beginning, with Bhairavastava, he discovered Bhairava and said, Oh God, the rays of your consciousness have chased away the darkness. I shall never be afraid of the demons, of death, of the glory to you, and all that. He is like a bhakta. He is full of love. And in the end of the day, he is totally philosophical because he has reached to the place where he can look at the world and see God in everything, in everyone, in every phenomenon, in every state of consciousness. And then basically he says, if you don't fall for this deteriorated middle state for this altered middle state and you stay in your middle state and it is your experience it's not just some intellectual discourse which you have it's you, you feel it, you see it you experience it then he says you enjoy the state of universal power because you have reached the full identification with Shiva and Shakti this was a beautiful excursion through Kashmiri Shaivism, starting with Bhairavastava, 
following with the description of the Mahashivaratri, celebrating Mahashivaratri with most of you, and finally, giving you the last poem of Abhinava Gupta. I do not intend to do more poems now. Maybe when we do the Kashmiri Shaivism intro workshop and so on, there I may uh, return to some of the poems, because each and every one of them is, of course, a spiritual pearl, a wonderful teaching. But all in all, this was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and it illustrates this formidable genius of Abhinava Gupta. It's not only a matter of understanding him, it is also a matter of being one with him, because this is for him a direct experience, not just here tonight. I tried to give you an intellectual understanding and based on that intellectual understanding to transmit something on Sahasrara so that you can experience a little bit of this higher state of consciousness. Well, expanding this and expanding this, then you are getting to the full experience of this fundamental state of consciousness. Thank you all for being here tonight and listening to Abhinava Gupta's words. With this, we have finished for tonight. See you along in the teaching activities and other activities here in Agama.